Good morning, friends. Uh, as Craig said, my name is Jason Wade. I've had the privilege to get to work with the youth since sometime in the middle of December, so they're kind of sick of me. Um, actually, I saw some of this, them this morning, and they said, what are you doing here? So um, I missed you guys, too. It's been good. Um, one final warning. Uh, I was drinking some water just before this. Craig gave it to me. Craig also told me he'd taken a couple of sips before that and said he hasn't been sick in about two years. Immediately after that, I heard him cough. So if I start to feel a little ill, we know who to blame. Uh, it's, a pleasure, it's a pleasure, it's a blessing to be here with you guys this morning to continue this series called Grow. As we talk about what it means to grow in our faith, how we grow in our faith, because everybody wants to grow, right? The alternative is to say the same, to be stagnant or worse yet, to go backwards. So in all things in life, we're always striving to grow, to become more, to get closer and closer to who we ought to be. But whereas when it comes to things like plants, we know how they grow. You take a styrofoam cup, you put a seed in it, you put some soil on the top, you give it light, you give it water, it grows. With our face, sometimes it's a little bit more difficult to understand how we grow. And so for the last few weeks, we've been talking about ways to grow, about the seed, about the soil, about the light of our faith. Today, we are going to talk about water. Water is sort of a pervasive part of life, right? It covers 71% of the earth's surface, about 60% of the average human body is made up of water. And for particular note of you people who love living in Minnesota, I'm from California originally, but this is a point of pride. In Minnesota, we have 11,842 lakes, which is nice for this next three months where it's actually warm enough to enjoy them. We have water everywhere. Water is essential not just to growth, it's essential to life, that you cannot live without water. Survivalists will tell you in the rule of threes that you can live for three weeks without food, but only three days without water. Scientists, you may have heard, have been going to great lengths to determine whether or not there's water on other planets, Mars in particular, and the reason that they look for water in other places is because on Earth, everywhere we find water, we find life. That water and life are that interchangeable that you need one for the other. That anywhere something lives, you find water. Water is also pretty cool. Uh, just a really brief story. In college, I had two college roommates. One's name was Mike. The other one was Steve. And I didn't get to know Steve very well because Steve was a football player. He ran with a different crowd. But my first memory of Steve was early in the fall as we came onto our freshman dorm floor. And on a hot fall day, Steve was wearing ski goggles, and he was hovered over the drinking fountain with the water splashing up onto his ski goggles. Steve was an odd guy. We asked him, what are you doing, Steve? And he goes, oh, I'm just looking at water up close. It's so cool. Occasionally throughout the year, Steve would go into the showers with his ski goggles on, and we knew what he was doing. Water is pretty cool. Right? We enjoy it in the summer. We need it on a hot day. I am not a runner, but I run. Um, for those of you that try to get in shape, you know what I mean. I hate running, but I run anyways, and when I run, I need water. We can marvel at the water in nature. We can stare, I can stare for hours at lakes, at oceans. It, it falls from the sky. It evaporates from the ground. Water is this strange, mysterious, life-giving thing. And today we're going to talk about how we need water, spiritual water, to grow in our faith. 
how it's essential not only to our spiritual life, but to our spiritual growth. And to look at that, we're going to look at a story. Um, Starting in John chapter 4, it's a story you may have heard before, um, where Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at a well. Now he, that is Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Pause right there for a second. A few interesting things about this story that I think we need to understand before we go on. We're going to pause throughout this story a number of times. Uh, The first is, is, as we talk about water, that Jesus, just like you and I on a hot day, stops at a well and he needs something to drink. And so this woman comes and approaches uh, around noon in the hottest part of the day, Um, And she has a bucket with her. She has some way to draw water. So Jesus asks her for a drink of water. That seems unremarkable to you or to me. But what Jesus was doing when he spoke to this woman in particular was breaking some cultural boundaries, was pushing through some cultural barriers. In fact, we see that in her response. She says, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And the scripture tells us that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's to put it lightly. Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. They shared a cultural history together. That at one point they were one people, uh, but that the group known as the Samaritans were Jews who had splintered off, who had intermarried and intermixed their culture with other cultures. And that had pertained to not only sort of the, the cultural identity that was Judaism, but also to parts of their faith. And that went against the cultural mandate that God had given to the Jews. So Jews did not like Samaritans. They looked down on them. And Samaritans, in an effort to form their own identity, hated the Jews. And so when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, he's doing something he shouldn't do. They don't talk to each other. They don't like each other. There's an enmity there. But Jesus doesn't care. What it doesn't say in the scripture, but what we should assume if we knew, if we were part of this time, is that it's weird that Jesus is talking to a woman alone in public in general. That for Jesus to talk to a woman was inappropriate. That she needed to have her husband present or her father present, some man who was responsible for her. And so when he speaks to her, not only a Samaritan, but also a woman, she is shocked. She's surprised. She says, how can you ask me for a drink of water? But Jesus does talk to her, and he offers her something rather remarkable. He says, if you knew who I am when I asked you for that, you wouldn't be asking these questions. You wouldn't care about these things. Rather, you would ask me for living water, and I would give it to you. She has no idea what he's saying, as we're going to find out. But Jesus is embarking on a spiritual conversation with this woman. And through a lot of twists and turns, we're going to see where he's guiding her in the end. Jump back in it at verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as he did also, 
as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. It should be obvious at this point that Jesus isn't talking about normal water, right? I mean, perhaps it's just for you and I. We know Jesus. We've heard these stories of Jesus. We know that Jesus, a lot of times, will talk about one thing when he's really talking about something else. He's talking about a deeper truth. This woman doesn't get it. He offers her living water, and she kind of looks at him strangely like, first, you're this weird guy, this Jew who's talking to me. Why are you talking to me? Now you're offering me living water. You don't even have a bucket or a rope. How are you going to give me water? You think you're greater than our, our ancestor Jacob who gave us this? Well, who are you, man? And Jesus calmly but directly continues to steer this conversation in a different direction. He makes it clear, abundantly clear, that he's talking about something else. He wants to give her a different type of water. A living water. She doesn't get it, which is why she responds, hey, I want some of that. See, she's sick of coming to the well every day to get some water. She says, you know what? If you give me this water, I won't have to keep coming back here to draw water. Something of note is that she's there in the middle of the day at noon. Um, she's alone there with Jesus, and that's kind of unusual. You see, ancient communities, they, they sprung up around water. They needed water to survive. And so where there was a well, where there was a stream, where there was fresh water, you could have a community, a town, a village, a city. But part of the daily ritual of someone who lived in a town was to get up in the early parts of the day where it was still cool and cold out and to go out and get the water that you would need for the day. That was a part of the communal experience of living in a town. And the women would go out together to get the water. This woman isn't going out at the same time as everyone else. She's going out at noon, in the hot part of the day. We're going to find out why in a minute. But she's enticed by this invitation from Jesus. Hey, give me some of this water. I don't want to have to keep coming back here anymore. Now, you and I, like I said, we know that Jesus is talking about something more. But I'm hoping that our response in this moment is the same as this woman's. You see, we want to talk about growing, right? We want to talk about what it means to be watered in our faith. And when Jesus offers the invitation for living water— Even though we maybe don't know what he's talking about yet, we know he's talking about more. Our response should be the same. Sir, give me some of this water. We should be excited. We should be hanging on the edge of our seat because whatever Jesus has to say to this woman about this water, it matters to us. It's the sort of thing that we should be searching after. Jesus, perhaps recognizing that she's not yet ready to understand what he's saying, he tries a different track in the conversation. We'll start again in verse 16. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you have, you now have, is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. We find out now maybe why this woman is coming to the well at noon. 
when no one else is around. She's had five husbands, which would make for a pretty tough life. That meant that her first five husbands had died. And so now she has taken a different route. She's living with a man who's not her husband. And Jesus takes a moment to reveal her sin. There's a lot of reasons why he might have done that, but I think it's because he desperately wants to have a spiritual conversation with this woman, and she's not getting it. And so he takes a moment to pick at something to make her vulnerable, to peel back a layer of her heart for a moment. He wants to offer her living water, but she can't understand what he's talking about. So he changes the the conversation just a little bit to talk about something deeply personal to her. And she responds in a good way, and to some respect, she begins to talk about something spiritual. But notice, she no longer wants to talk about her personal sin. Jesus mentions, you're living with a man who's not your husband. What you're saying is true, technically, and she changes the subject immediately. It's hard to blame her, right? But she jumps then into saying, I can see that you are a prophet. It works. Jesus has opened her eyes to the fact that something more is going on here. And so she asks him a theological question, a question about where they ought to worship. Now, as I mentioned before, Jews and Samaritans, they had different structures of, uh, of belief. That whereas the Jews had held to the biblical teaching, the Old Testament teaching on worship, that the Samaritans had taken the scriptures and changed them, that they had omitted some of the scriptures, that they had changed some of their practices on worship. And so she asks him a question about worship. And Jesus' response, which we began with and we're going to continue with now, I think is really where he's been guiding this conversation all along. He's going to tell her about true worship. In verse 22, he says, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And this is where Jesus has been guiding this conversation all along, right? He says some pretty profound things. He sits down by a thirsty well, by a well thirsty in the middle part of the day. He talks to a woman he shouldn't talk to, and he tells her about these spiritual things. He invites her to drink living water. He begins to teach her about worship, and he reveals that he is the Messiah. What he has to say about water is really important to us. What he has to say about living water and worship is really important to us. He proposes a new paradigm for worship for this woman. She asks, where should we worship? And Jesus says, you know what? A time is coming. In fact, it's here now where where you worship won't matter. What will matter is two things, that you worship God in the spirit and in truth. And those two things, I think, are really essential to our growth. They're really essential to our receiving the water, the living water that God wants to give us to help us grow. And so we're going to talk about those two things. First, we're going to talk about what it means to worship in truth. Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. And as I said before, the Samaritans have taken the truth about God and they've changed it. They've changed the scriptures. They've changed the teaching. They worship in a different way. You could say they worship a different God. They believe they are worshiping God, but they are not worshiping him in truth. 
that when we come together in this place to worship God, it is essential, it is core to worshiping God as we ought to, to worship God in truth. Which is why we hold to the inerrancy of scripture, while we talk through God's word on a weekly basis together, to worship God in truth, to come to know him more as he truly is. And as we come to know God in our time together, as we are edified by teaching from his word, we grow as people of faith. We grow in our understanding of God. We are watered by that living water of God. We worship him in truth. But perhaps more enticing than that, more alluring to me, is this idea that we worship God in the spirit. The question is, what does that mean? And for us to understand what that means, I want us to look at one other scripture, a parallel scripture, actually, from John chapter 7, where Jesus again talks about living water. Jesus is in Judea, and he's talking uh, to a group of people during a festival, the festival of the tabernacle, and he says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. I want to draw your attention to a couple of things about these two different passages of scripture. They follow almost the same track. But Jesus begins by offering living water to an audience that doesn't necessarily understand what he's talking about. And they end with a declaration that he is a prophet, that in fact he is the Messiah. The difference is, in between, in the first passage, Jesus talks about worship. He talks about worshiping in the Spirit. In the second passage, it actually tells us that when he's talking about living water, he's talking about the Spirit that will be given to the believers. He's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. So that when Jesus talks about worshiping in the Spirit, what he means is that when we worship God well, we participate with God in worship. That when we worship in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God comes and worships with us. We participate hand in hand with what God is doing in worship. That's a pretty profound and heavy truth. That to worship in spirit and in truth, means that not only that we teach truth here, that the songs that we sing, uh, sing truly about God, but that also when we worship together, the Holy Spirit of God comes and indwells this place. That God is moving in this place. That God, that Holy Spirit, that living water of God is poured out on us as we worship in spirit and in truth. If we want to grow our faith, if we want to become the men and women that God made us to be, if we want to continue on that track, what better way than to be watered with living water? What better way than to worship in the Spirit, to participate in what God is doing? We live, I think, in a culture, in an American culture that's very individualized where we, we think about ourselves as individuals, we think about our faith as an individual faith, as a personal faith, and there's some good things to that, certainly. 
Um, but we also live in a culture that builds barriers between people, that we, we put up walls in our backyards to kind of keep some privacy out. We like to do things on our own. And sometimes in that, the expression of corporate communal worship can get lost, I think. I know that's true in my own story. I went to college at Bethel, great college for all you people considering where you're going to go to school. Highly recommended. Um, but I studied theology academically there. And I was a part of a small group. And in the midst of, of attending school and attending my theological classes and, and being a part of a small group, one thing that I left behind was an expression of worship in a place like this, in a church setting, in a, in a large corporate setting, because I felt like I was being fed in so many other ways. Why did I need it? Because I thought, you know what? I'm studying the scriptures every day at, for homework, every day in classes. I'm meeting together with Christians every day. My roommates are Christians. We're talking about things. We're praying together. And those were good things. But I had abandoned this idea of worshiping together because I didn't think that I needed it. My senior year of college, however, I had a, a professor that challenged me on that belief. And it wasn't like, you know, a firmly held belief. It wasn't something that I said out loud. I don't think I need to go to church anymore. My faith is fine. I just didn't do it. And I had a college professor that began to ask us about that. How many of us went to church out of a senior practicum of people who were graduating with a Bible and theology degree? And out of like the 20 or so of us in the class, like three people raised their hands. The rest of us did not participate in a church worship setting at all. And as he began to challenge that, as he began to challenge our belief, he pointed towards all of these scriptures where again and again and again, the picture of worship that we're given is of multitudes of people crying aloud with one voice to God. Not of individuals sitting alone in their room reading their Bibles, which is a good thing. But of communities, of people coming together in a way that worships God together in a way that gives life, in a way that the Spirit of God indwells and moves. The simple truth is that a practice of healthy spiritual growth is participating in worship. Along with all the things that we do individually that we need to come together, we are demanded, we're not demanded, we are commanded by God to come together to worship Him in the Spirit and in truth. Growing up in church, in Sunday school and on Wednesday nights, me and my buddies had a joke uh, that any question you would ask in church had one of two answers. The first answer was Jesus. So if you weren't paying attention and they asked you a question, you could raise your hand and you could about half of the time answer Jesus and that would be the right answer. The other half of the time, the answer had four parts. It was read your Bible, pray, go to church, and spread the word. Because... I guess my Sunday school experience was summed up in those two things. That everything was either about Jesus or about committing to these practices of reading our Bibles, of praying, of going to church and spreading the word. Sometimes faith really can be that simple, you know. We've been talking about growth for the last four weeks and we have this wonderful analogy of the seed, which is the word of God, of the soil, which is of heart, which, uh, of light, which is our responsibility to share the word to, to participate in what God is doing, of water, which is worship, which is the Holy Spirit of God poured out on us. But if we want to grow in our faith, it maybe is just that simple. We need to participate in these things. We need to participate in worship. And when we come together in worship, in this place, when we do it well, we grow. 
We grow through the teaching about truth. We grow through the spirit moving in us. And that living water is poured out in a way that overflows out of our lives. One of the things that changed most profoundly my belief on on the necessity of worshiping together in a communal setting wasn't something that happened in a classroom. It was the experience that I had when I started coming back to church. It was those holy moments that you have when you're meeting together and you, you are singing aloud and you feel that presence of God. You know what I'm talking about? We had those moments where we're all together and we're singing and and something about the words, something about the moment, something about what is going on touches you and you can tell that God is there, that you're actually worshiping in the spirit, that God is participating with you. We feel those moments profoundly sometimes. And I imagine if a plant could tell you what it feels like, if a plant could feel that it's the same sort of thing that the plant would feel when the gardener, the one who cares for it, the one who trims it, the one who who is cultivating the growth of this plant comes by and waters the plant and fills it to overflowing. That's the experience that we have when we worship together in spirit and in truth. If we want to grow, what better way to grow and to bow down together at the feet of the one who is gardening us, who is cultivating our growth. Because no matter how much we try, it is God who gives the growth. And in this place, we worship him. I'm gonna pray. Would you guys please pray with me? God, you are a good God. A God who loves us. A God who wants to give us great things, who promises us living water poured out into our lives. God, as we come to this place every week to worship you, God, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. May our hearts and minds be positioned in such a way that we come to know truly who you are more and more together. And when we worship, God, send your spirit to dwell in this place that we would know you richly and abundantly. That as we sing our songs of worship, as we glorify you, God, pour out your spirit on us in living water that we might grow, that we might become all that you intend us to be. We pray these things in your name, amen.